I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our featured poet today is Andrew Shaw. He was born and raised in England. He's a much published poet in, in actually a wide range of places, such as the Haiku Quarterly, Poetry Nottingham International. He's exhibited in art galleries around Europe and won numerous literary awards. He's also contributed arts and culture content for the BBC, which I personally find impressive. While serving as poet in residence at the Swan Theatre, he developed an anonymous art and writing project, which he says is outside the mainstream. For roughly a decade, he has led a project called the Silent Academy that makes small poetic installations happen in public places all around the world, actually, with the help of other writers. He has a new book, Couplets, and we'll be talking about both the Silent Academy and the book. And uh, Andrew is talking to us from Port Townsend in Washington State, out there in the western U.S. And we've got a lot here, but uh, I suppose finding out about the Silent Academy might be a good place to start. Well, um, yeah, thank you for having me, first of all. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, the Silent Academy was a, a project where I started realizing that I had a network of friends through various connections um, and meetings, as you know, what you kind of you come together for a reading or an art event and then everybody retreats home. <laughs> yeah. And and sometimes it's difficult for that community to exist um, in a regular way, like other, you know, like a sports team or yeah. where we see each other more readily. And um but I also like the intimacy and the um and the um what's the word? How close a poem can be. Um even more so than this, even more so than talking over, you know, live, you know, if you write something down, it endures. And so that's where the idea came from. And I had a friend who lived in France. And so he and I would synchronistically um, place very small poems at the same time, irregardless of time zones, uh, or sometimes cut up poems and separate them. And then this happened with other projects. And it kind of expanded from there, the more, more people were added and so we'd leave things on buses or in trains or up mountains or um, things like that, just so when people found a fragment or a poem, um, they suddenly felt the power of that and the intimacy of whatever was going on in the poem. Oh, in an so, unusual and unexpected, the magic of the unexpected. Kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. No, when you sent me your book, you included a, a little tag with a, with a little string on it. Is that the standard operating procedure or are there... Are there multiple ways that you leave these poems to be found? Oh, um, that's that was specifically for couplets. I really like the idea of um, the old Graham poets. This isn't a tradition that I invented. I mean, we mm. know, you know, the, the Graham poets that were left, and I'd seen lots in brown paper. Um, but living in the Pacific Northwest, and this was a project I started in the winter, I thought I need something a bit more resilient <laughs> to, and water-resistant. Um, so I chose, I mean, it's um, biodegradable paper, it's non-bleached, it's, it's not terrible for the environment. Um, I was aware of that because that's going to draw criticisms. Um, but I liked the scale, I liked that um, I'd read about a certain number of writers that were, whose content was dictated by the form, the, not just the, the structure of the poem, but actually the notepad that they were writing in. Right. 
and I really Kerouac. enjoyed Kerouac. Um, Kerouac, yeah, with the small notebooks. Yeah, um, for one. Uh, yeah, and he was somebody that I really enjoyed uh, growing up, and I, I liked the idea of putting it in places um, that was less rarefied than the places that you've mentioned in my resume there, you know. Yeah. Um, leave it in a pub, leave it outside of a factory, leave leave these little white tags in places where people don't usually go looking for poetry. Um, so yeah, it was always on the white tags um, for this project, but previously it was slips of paper, um, scrolls. I did one recently in uh, a couple of years ago in Nepal where I actually printed out scrolls on some really fine paper mm. um, that were much longer, uh, much longer poems. Yeah, you're mentioning a biodegradable reminds me, is it a Japanese? form or practice where they do hang i don't know if it's poems but these things are hung up outside and the idea is that they will disintegrate and that's part of the experience of the whole thing but somebody I, more qualified will have a better answer than I don't me know. Um, <laughs> well, a i know thought. i know that they do it in japan i don't know where it or origin what the origins are yeah. um, i know there's a big tradition especially in the east eastern writing traditions for for the fabric of the materials to dissolve yeah. um and to become the the environment and i you know that's something that i really enjoy as well you know if it comes from the environment you know the material returning yeah um, there's a poetry to that i feel yeah like and also like making the sand mandala that's gonna takes forever right. to, to build and it's blown away in a moment and swept into a river yeah that's perfect <laughs> yeah, yeah then you do these at a are you do this constantly or do you declare it's going to be, you know, distribute poems Saturday afternoon kind of a thing or to your friends around the world or whatever? Um, I, this project couplets, I got into the discipline of um, meditate. I meditate a lot I'm, uh, every day. And so it was something that I actually enjoyed um, in, in Zen. They, they discuss sometimes holding the koan. koan. Um, so not necessarily looking for an answer, but just being. Mm. Um, and so I, I would sit with these couplets um, for a week, and then on Fridays around eight o'clock in the morning, nine o'clock in the morning, I would just go out and I would go for a walk in a certain radius and look for the place that made most sense at that time. Mm. Um, now that was a rule that got bent. <laughs> Oh, wow. It was quite a flexible rule, but it was usually Fridays. It was always Friday. Sometimes I was a bit later. Sometimes it was a bit earlier. Um, but uh, other projects, no, it was just when we could all... Sometimes it was like an exotic thing. So if somebody said that they're in Mali, you were like, okay, that's a good place. Okay. Um, you know, let's do something yeah. with that. Yeah. Well, how about... Um, let, let's hear a couple or two. Okay. Um We'll go back and forth between the couplets and the project and whatever. Yeah. Um, well, here's one that um, I, I noticed that um, since I've written these and a couple of only a couple of friends have seen these so far because the book's not yet released. Yep. Um, it's funny how some of the sense of these couplets has been appearing to me. And somebody was talking about birds. Um, and the description of birds. I thought, oh, I just said something about that. <laughs> so this is a, um, all the words it takes to hold a bird in flight. 
Wait, let's sit for a moment. Okay, do another. A library of unimagined theories. Now you said something in the introduction of the book, which I thought was pretty interesting here. I want to offer beautiful disruptions to habitual thinking. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? That's that's a nice nice statement. And, oh, thank you. Um, and if you want to go back and repeat a couple, it's because you know how hard it is to capture these things that are right. Well, minds, um, uh, as examples or whatever. I think. Um, I'll, 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 say, I'll say something else as well that from the introduction where I talk about a lot of my heroes were surrealist um, poets okay and I'm familiar of the charge against surrealists that they never addressed um, real world issues and they shied away from conflict and especially deserting Paris before the Nazis arrived and things like this and I think where I where I think that a lot of the times that might be an, an accurate assumption or, or, or critique of that movement, essentially those writers. Um, I genuinely feel that with the current political climate, we are where we are because of habitual thinking and maybe not necessarily logical thinking, mm -hmm. but these, these um, almost untested habits where we get up and we assume these things and we, and we um, we get dressed in our beliefs and we get dressed and we put these things on every day and we find ourselves in this exhausting process of rinse and repeat every day and it's this cyclical cyclical process with usually and it seems um, the results seldom improve <laughs> and, yeah. and um, you know regardless of your political standing whenever people you know swing from one extreme to another that's a pattern and what usually the conditions that come before this situation gave rise to this situation. Um, and so I thought, well, if we can disrupt that process somehow, if I can do that and work on an individual level um, and use that to inject something other, something other than habit, yeah. um, that was the thing, that was the appeal to me of surrealism. It was the appeal to me of, all the poets that worked in that um, in that tone, and also I think that haiku does that. It, it puts a pause. Um, I forget her name now. There's a lady poet who wrote about the slice of silence between geese in migration, oh. and I think it's the pause between things where we can maybe assess the noise, where we can find a, a meaning of it rather than just contributing to the habit. Um, yeah, this sounds um, zen-like too. It's like right. getting a, a moment of of noticing something that you're not usually noticing, right? Somehow, and and again, what you said about the surrealists, I think, I mean, as, as a reaction to World War One, and all the things that were that went wrong that were so horrific, I think that's part of the, as I understood or recall, maybe you can always correct me. You know, they they said we got to think differently. So yeah, well, if I think that's this stuff in your face and, and make you think a little bit differently or wake up. I think there was a phrase that was if logical thinking brought us here, then we better start thinking illogically. Um, oh, and I really like that. Um, I do have a, a, a Zen teacher and he said something about, you know, I can't believe that that people are so stupid. They keep doing this. And I, and I thought, well, I 
can't believe that people are so lacking in compassion. <laughs> you don't you don't need yeah. you don't need intelligence to be compassionate. So I wanted that was the point of this this collection was try and go for compassion, try and go for beauty and maybe not enter a debate but pre present something that's counter to the debate by being yeah. in my terms better than um other than yeah. and yeah. present that as an option. Um not just to be beautiful for the sake of um, respite or looking in the other direction, but to say, well, there is something here that's worth preserving that that's an extension that yeah. is not in the habit. Would you read those first two again now that we've added more context? And then okay. we'll go on to another one uh, that we haven't heard yet, just because uh, just I have new things in my head now. Okay. All the words it takes to hold a bird in flight. Now I'm shuffling because I removed page numbers to make it more fun to find poems. <laughs> yeah, you said there's no pagination. Yeah. It adds to the randomness a little bit of what you're gonna get next. A library of unimagined theories. And now now that's here when we haven't heard, or one or two we haven't heard. An orphanage of words beneath your tongue. The flowers of your lungs pressed into history. They're very cone-like because they're not obvious. Right. Exactly what the hell's going on. So you have to, mm, what they're, uh, yeah. Read them, would you read them again? You don't mind me asking you to do that, do you? No, not at all. Okay, cool. I'm just, I'm just guessing at what makes it you know, good for people. An orphanage of words beneath your tongue. The flowers of your lungs pressed into history. All right. Now I'll tell you something else you said in the introduction. My hope is to inspire peace by steering towards stuff that illustrates the interdependence of all things and to produce abstractions which are joyous and or beautiful. That does sound grand. <laughs> Not bad, <laughs> yeah. I must have got a lot of tea that day. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know, what, 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 is, what is, this is interesting. Yeah. You know, I was just talking a, a couple of podcasts ago uh, about, you know, damn it, does poetry have any effect does it really do we're really doing anything when we write our poems? Uh, but we certainly intend to do something, as you say, to inspire peace. God's sake, it's a pretty big goal, you know. Yeah, I think even if it's fleeting, it's worth something. Um I, I think even if it's given that all things are passing and fleeting, yeah. Um, if we can for a moment inspire it in the moment and with that connection with somebody, or even if we amplify the piece. Um, I think that's the, that's, I think that's what I mean. Um, let's extend that, um, you know, and, and have that as a, um, uh, uh, you know, if poetry can convey that, yeah. or if these poems rather can convey that, not all, I mean, there's a, you know, some great angry poems and some great confrontational sure. poetry that I think is enormously value. Um, but for the moment, I think there was enough anger and enough, um, things that were sort of draining me of joy, actually, you know, mm. 
I was paying too close attention to everything and 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 uh, I was speaking with somebody recently and I and um there's a punk band in England who have a, an album and the title is um Joy is an act of resistance. Ooh, that's good. And I just thought that was such a powerful a powerful alchemy of of anger into joy, you know. And I think, you know, yeah. what an admirable, what an admirable pursuit to um to not deny or negate the anger, but to perform that alchemy and to extend, you know, to to have peace as an example, not even to engage in a fight, but just to be something other. I keep going in the circle of being something other, break the habit. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if I can disrupt the the thing, I can, I could, you know, break down where some of these, uh, uh, some of these couplets academically sit or, you know, the meaning behind four words Yeah. <laughs> and, and why I chose that. Um, so the one that I close, um, the final one, uh, which is also the title of my next project, which will be a longer, uh, not poetry book, is just four words. Um, and that is an archive of sky. Sky. Yeah. I liked the idea that um, to replicate the sky, the colours of the sky, mm. is an impossible task. And I like the sky is empty. Um, it's, it is mm. completely devoid of meaning. And some people can see the sun and say, oh, it's a miserable, yeah. miserably hot day. And some people say, oh, thank goodness we've got the sun. Yeah. Um, and living in the Pacific Northwest every, and surrounded by water here, where I am, every every five minutes the sky is different. And um, so I talked to taking photographs of it, and I was looking at how they're generated digitally, and a hex number is generated so the computer knows how to reassemble the sky. Oh. And so I really enjoyed the idea that, like so many things, this thing that is just beautiful and devoid of any inherent meaning has all this stuff projected on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I thought, well, I, I can extract from that. That's that there's so many things where that happens that, you know, this thing just is. Um, yeah. uh, and this is how we this is what we do. We're compelled with our minds to pour some meaning into stuff. Yeah. Um, which is usually always shy of the mark and never as beautiful as the thing that we're trying to um, discuss. Of reality. Well, the one poem of yours that the words don't contain it. Right. Yeah. Uh, that reminded me, I want to ask you, because I'm just curious. How do you know when you've got a winner when you're writing such brief poems, those couplets? Um, surely everything you wrote didn't make it into the book. And I wonder, and I'm not, no, no, I'm not saying it's possible to articulate that, but maybe you can. So I thought I'd ask, how do you know? The winners from the losers, the ones you think, yeah, that's got it. No, that's just words on a page. You know what I mean? Yeah. You now you mentioned that before we spoke. Yeah. Today, and I thought, well, I I've always had this habit of, like, much like this process where I carry the poem with me, and so it's very rare that I actually keep any workings. I'll throw something out if it's bad. If it's bad, it doesn't deserve to exist. Um, I've I'm quite um, 
I prefer cleanliness <laughs> than working too hard. Um, so I'll work with it in my mind a lot before it's before it okay. comes to a paper. But I know that um, the, the the reason why I chose this one um, was because I struggled with. Um, I did. I'll read the couplet. And then I'll explain okay. how, how I struggled. But it's Great. one that we touched on. Um, a library of unimagined theories. That, that came around because I was trying to, uh, trying to explain to myself about the ideas that you don't have until it's too late, the solutions that, um, that are always unobtainable but you know that they exist okay. and so it was a very clunky it was a very clunky um sense of something in me that there's always a solution and it usually exists without you looking for it at least metaphysically or you know spiritually or yeah. um within relationships there's always an answer um and it's often best not sought <laughs> <laughs> Okay, sure. <laughs> um, you see it when you're not, yeah. You see when I, you're not looking, right? Yeah. So I liked the idea of, um, I liked the idea of that. So that started off as a very long phrase, okay. and a very, and a very big sense. And I just, I just kind of, I go through this distillation process of, well, take it down to the cleanest words, and then does it sound lyric? Does it sound like it has flow within maybe four or five words? Sure. And if it reaches that meter and it just then feels pleasing, mm -hmm. then it deserves to exist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there are many that don't deserve to exist, and so they're probably, well, yeah. you know, forgotten. Yeah, I'm having a lot of fun talking to you, you know. I just love talking about this kind of thing, uh, I guess because I believe in a lot of things uh, you're expressing. Right, well, And, and the connections with, with Zen and awareness and uh, and thinking processes too, What the things you just said about... Uh, you know how you know what you don't know you know right uh, things like that just well I think um, I wrote this in public um, and that was another part of sharing it as I went along was the I'm I don't like the rarefication of a lot of poetry and I don't like that it's it's removed from people and um, as as much value as I see in the academic and in the um in the knowing of the rules we're talking about poetry and that should be intuitive and emotive and seductive and none of those things you can be tested on really <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> or you can but i'm not sure what standard and what measure would be used so right. um yeah intuition uh, so I think that's an significant part of Zen as well, of just going with the intuition, the intuitive, the, yeah. the truth of the thing, yeah. whatever that is. Um, that to me is the most important thing in all things. You know, the marriage of the internal right. and the external—that's right. where the rub. Yeah, I've got to just give a, a last plug, folks, of the fact that we're talking with Andrew Shaw, talking to us from Port Townsend, Washington, the author of Couplets a very interesting and different collection of poetic expression. Well, it's been great talking to you. As I said, uh, you're listening to Poetry Spoken here. I'm your host, Charlie Rossiter, and we have been enjoying the company of Andrew Shaw. Thank you very much. 
You're listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm your host, Charlie Rossiter. We have been visiting with Andrew Shaw out in Port Townsend, Washington. And now I'd like to delve into a lovely new book by Ted Kuzer called Kindest Regards, New and Selected Poems. Kuzer was the U.S. Poet Laureate from 2004 to 2006 and was, in fact, he's from Nebraska, the first Poet Laureate from that part of the country ever. If you already have some of Kuzer's books, I know many of you do, you'll still be pleased to find that there are nearly 60 new poems in this collection. So I decided to focus on the new poems and talk a little bit here about some things that that Kuzer does particularly well that are evident in these poems. You know, he is a master of the comparison. His metaphors and similes are just off the top. Listen to these examples. In a poem about an old sewing machine with a kind of foot pedal that you may recall seeing, he says, The black treadle, like a grate on a drain that someone had pried up from the back and propped it partly open and left it like that. It's just a a really interesting connection there that he makes. In another poem called Memorial Day, He remembers from his childhood the old Spanish-American war veterans who were in the parade, sort of the last of a dying breed. And he describes them this way. They were on the way to the grave of the unknown soldier, where they would each year hear, or partly hear, through ears grown big and soft as wallets, a struggling taps. Oh, come on. Ears as big and soft as wallets. I find that absolutely off the top. Beautiful. Here's another one. And in a poem, this is really just appropriate to the poem, about a merchant marine uncle who comes home, you know, and talks to the kids and shows them a magic trick. And the uncle wears a watch cap, black as a knight, anchored in Reykjavik. Just a few examples of some of the fabulous comparisons that Ted Kuzer makes. You know, his poems at first might look like simple, little straightforward statements, but those kinds of linguistic uh, and thoughtful treats uh, abound. And you've got to just, they're so smooth, you've got to watch out. You might not notice, but they're beautiful. Now, another thing, of course, Ted has a poem from long ago about an abandoned farmhouse, which is much anthologized, and I think many people see it in their uh, school texts. He still is writing, including among the things he writes about, disappearing and decaying and abandoned kind of buildings and sites out there in, in the rural Midwest. In a poem called Roadside, he talks about a trailer park that's gone. He says, a patch of waist high weeds where what was once a trailer park has since gone back to pasture. He talks about the second and third hand cheap aluminum trailers with windows glaring on their kitchen ends and doors pulled shut on any hope of welcome. They sat yards apart, dice rolled out and left where they'd stopped. And a few ambitious saplings had pushed up under and worked their way in and were leaving out over the roofs. You can just see that picture and uh, because it's so vividly portrayed for you. 
in another poem, another building that isn't there. Actually, this is called Three Steps in the Grass. And it tells the story, uh, to cut his property taxes, the owner bulldozed the house he'd been born in and the moldy chicken house and the shed where he and his father and uncles fixed broken machinery. And later, what's left is a wire that droops in from the county road to a power pole. The meter, like a dirty drop of rain, and three concrete steps that lead up to the porch that's gone. With an iron rail, like a warm leather strap you can grip if you've gotten wobbly. Another vivid, beautifully portrayed scene. And in terms of that, I have to think about how, how good Kuzer is at the observation. In the same way that <clears throat> Ferlinghetti can sit in a cafe and tell you about the people sitting at tables nearby, Kuzer does this with people in his environment. He has a couple of poems here about uh, what he observes passing by. One poem is just a guy leaning against a warehouse, smoking a cigarette, that the poem's called Passing Through, and it's something that Kuzer notices as he drives by. Another is a woman and child watching traffic, the woman's arms around the child who's sitting in front of her, and they're just up there on that hillside, and he's got that image, and he wants to remember it. He says that in the poem, and I'm I'm sure that's part of why he wrote the poem. Then there's the poem, Splitting an Order, which was the title poem of an earlier book. And I am going to find that, and I'm going to read it, because it's an example of something he does. He paces the presentation so that you will take in the scene in a way that's compatible with the scene. I like to watch an old man cutting a sandwich in half. Maybe an ordinary cold roast beef on whole wheat bread, no pickles or onion, keeping his shaky hands steady by placing his forearms firm on the edge of the table and using both hands, the left to hold the sandwich in place, the right to cut it surely corner to corner observing his progress through glasses that moments before he wiped with his napkin. The poem goes on and it concludes that when he gives the half sandwich to his wife and she extends both hands to him, it's a beautiful scene. And that's splitting the order. And I have to mention that it's interesting that one of Kuzer's great strengths is the way he can observe a scene and convey it to us. And I'd like to conclude with a few lines from the poem, Mother, where Ted acknowledges her influence. Were it not for the way you taught me to look at the world, to see the life at play in everything, I would have to be lonely forever. So you can see we all owe Ted Guzer's mom a debt of gratitude. I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Please join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Tell your friends to come on and follow us and listen along.
You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter Munley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetry spoken here. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetry spoken here. For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, poetryspokenhere.com. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, poetryspokenhere at gmail.com.